Welcome to another episode of the Animals Podcast. For years, content marketers have been putting a ton of eggs in the search basket, believing it's the gift that just keeps on giving. But as Google improves user experience on SERPs, offering way more no-click answers, they're causing organic search traffic to drop. This week, Davin and Cassie, one of our awesome teammates who you haven't met yet, discuss what content marketers and companies can do to adapt to this new reality and how to turn it into an opportunity. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Animals Podcast. My name is Devin. I'm the Director of Marketing here at Animals. And today I am joined by Cassie, one of our content strategists. And we are going to be talking about the death of search today and the impact that it has on businesses. Cassie, I, in true dramatic fashion, I left us on a cliff, but welcome. I can't wait to dive into this with you. Thanks. Me too. I'm excited to talk about it. And it is dramatic, I think. Yeah, it's dramatic. You know, look, for for so long, content marketers have put an increasing number of eggs in the search basket. And now we're kind of realizing that some of those eggs may not turn into a beautiful custard or flan or whatever you make eggs with. I think for a long time it did, though. For a long time, we had a really good deal with search engines, between search engines and content marketers, but we can't expect that that deal to carry on forever. Yeah. So talk to me about this. Like, walk me through. Like, where? Tell me about. Like, give me a little bit of history, and explain our current state and like the precipice that we stand on currently. Yeah, it's good to uh, to get a bit of context on it. I think the sort of the death of search-driven content marketing. We've spoken about it for years because I think search marketers and content marketers are kind of frightened that one day search will stop being the, the gift that keeps giving because we rely on it so much. And we have for years, you know, we've seen 80% of our a site's traffic come from search, really high conversion rates off organic, that kind of thing. We've relied on it. And as I said it before, I don't think this is a situation that we should expect will continue for a long time. And even though we shouldn't go crazy and say like search is dead already because people are still getting 50% of their traffic from search, I think we should start preparing for, for what happens if search traffic goes down. What do we do in that situation? Well, the problem is, right, it's not that we're so much that we're relying on search. We're relying on Google for search, so it's it's the platform reliance more so than right like they're the the platform drives is the the creator of this opportunity and therefore they can change our current reality whenever they want and that's what's currently happening so like talk to me a little more about that like what is like search isn't going away it's that the nature of search results is changing and that's taking away the traffic that we used to get so talk about that a little bit yeah people are still like people are still using Google to search. It's not as if users and searchers are leaving search engines, Google in particular. I shouldn't say that Google has a monopoly, but certainly in the US, it seems that Google has towards 90% of searches are made on Google. And in most countries in the world, I think only a few countries like South Korea and Russia, you get different search engines dominating. So it is Google dominating as a platform. And the People are still searching with it and people are searching more and more worldwide. But how they behave when they reach 
the search engine is changing thanks to Google's product offering changing. So Google are specifically changing the interface and the product to change the way that we interact with that product in the long run. Right. So things like, you know, Google Flights, for example, if you're looking for, you know, a flight to Barcelona to go visit Cassie, <laughs> I can get those results right on the search results page and versus getting a list of flight booking services or whatever. Or if I want to know how to boil an egg, I can get those instructions in bulleted fashion on the search results page. What are some other examples of like types of queries that are now being displayed on the search result page? Those are great examples. And I just want to wind back a bit and say, as a user, they sound fantastic. And we all use those kind of immediate answers on Google all the time. I don't want to necessarily, if I want to know how to boil an egg, go to someone's website and have them tell me a long story about their, you know, how they boiled eggs when they were children or something. I think we want those answers immediately, and Google knows that. So as a user, this is a great feature. As a marketer, a content marketer, a search marketer, it does pose an existential threat to you and your industry if you are charged with bringing people to websites for particular terms. And we'll see how that fits into the business model a little bit later, I think. So what kind of terms are Google currently, let's not say stealing traffic, but what kind of terms are Google giving instant answers for? If you think in SEO terms, they're head terms or middle terms. So things that are easy to give a quick answer to. So you might say, I don't know, demand generation, something, if you type that into Google, you'll probably get an answer box that comes up and gives you a quick definition taken from Wikipedia of demand generation. If you do a how-to search, you'll get, like you said, steps on how to boil an egg. Or I think I did a test one the other day, which was how to wash a dog. And you know, you get like <laughs> step one, put the dog in the shower, things like this. So it's stuff that can be broken down into digestible chunks. So sure. that's the kind of terms that we're starting, I think, to see to become more difficult for sites to get click through from. You can still appear in the, the so-called like SERP feature, the answer box or featured snippet, but then it's becoming increasingly difficult to get click through from that. And we see that in the falling click through rates, both on desktop and mobile at the moment. Yeah. This is interesting to me because, okay, if you go way back to the beginning of our time as content marketers, like the original promise that we made, right, as content marketers was like, we're going to give you a great, a better experience. Like we were all reader focused, user focused, right? And back then, SEO was keyword stuffing and like, you know, all these kind of like non-user friendly tactics, right? And now I feel like it's almost reverse where as content marketers, like we should be celebrating the fact that the search results pages are getting better, right? They're more useful to users. They're more efficient. Yet at the same time, it's posing a problem for us. And it's just, to me, it's like a, a very interesting place to be right now where I'm both like excited that, you know, it's easier for me to get what I need when I search for something but also as a marketer, I'm like, this kind of sucks. I think as a, that conflict that all marketers, particularly content marketers, search marketers have between how you feel as a user using search engines and how you feel as a marketer is a really interesting conflict to think about and to 
to sit with. Like I am, as a user, sometimes I think we feel like we look at Google in particular as some sort of public service broadcaster in a way, as if Google was all our own public property and it it does what's best for us. Because as a user, they're so user centric. So then as a marketer, you feel like you have some sort of ownership or some sort of right to demand Google that Google keeps sending you traffic. I, I sort of feel offended that Google is doing giving such a good experience to the users and no longer sends traffic to sites like it used to. But Google is a business. And I think sometimes we have this strange way of forgetting that and feeling like it's more like, I don't know, like the BBC or NPR or something where it should do us a favor and it, and it won't and it shouldn't. So we have to be comfortable with that that conflict that we're living through at the moment of Google will do what's best for Google and will keep you on Google as long as possible. And we, whether we are excited by that opportunity or not, we have to get used to it. Sure. And we've been getting used to it for years, right? Because Facebook, the changes that they've made to the platform, right? Like they're not giving businesses, you basically have to pay to play on Facebook if you're a business now, right? Like Twitter is somewhat the same. Like they're all developing features that encourage people to remain on their platform by giving them like even Twitter, like the moments, right? Originally moments were for users and now business, you know, they are them. Twitter themselves are aggregating news stories from multiple tweets, kind of summarizing it for people and being like, look, you can get everything. You can watch the video here. You can get the highlights. You don't need to read a single article. You can get everything you need from every news platform right here. So it's not just Google that's doing this either. It's sort of the reality across the board. And I think, you know, if you looked at it from a business perspective for them, for Facebook, for LinkedIn, for Twitter, for, for Google, it makes complete sense because how do they make money? They make money off ad dollars. And so the more ads you see, the better it is for them. The more money they have the potential to make, the better they look to advertisers. How do you see lots of ads? You don't leave the platform. And exactly like you said, we saw that in Facebook algorithm changes. We've seen that in LinkedIn and possibly Twitter, elevating to the top of your feed tweets and posts that don't have any outbound links in them. So, you know, I could make a comment and not put a link in there and that might appear first or appear more frequently because they want to keep people in there. And I think Instagram is the one that really has this built into its functionality and that you just can't put a link unless you put it in your bio. And the number of people who are going to go to your bio and then follow a link, I think it's really paltry. It's not many people are going to do that. So, of course, they're keeping us on the site and it makes perfect sense for them. And it works for users. It's just kind of marketers are a bit squeezed in the middle thanks to this business model. Yeah, I mean, businesses in general, right? Because these platforms can't exist without us either, right? And so it's sort of this give and take and finding that balance, right? And I think that that balance was a little bit, the the seesaw, right, was a little more even before. And now it's kind of, the scales are tipping a bit. So we have this sort of challenge now. This is a new state of reality. Google, all these social platforms are trying to keep users there and they're like not sending as much traffic to companies. Therefore, what's the impact on companies, right? Less traffic and they're having to find what other ways to get traffic outside of search and social organically, organically. Sorry, I should make that distinction. Yeah, it's good to make that distinction. We're always talking about like a drop in organic traffic um, in this conversation. 
And I think it's starting off quantitatively, like if we look at what's actually happening according to the stats, and um, I took some of these stats from the Spark Toro site, which is Rand Fishkin's previously of Morris's new tool. And I think he found working with a, working with a, like a stats agency, he found that between 1997 and 2017, organic clicks grew year on year from SERPs. But in 2016, that reversed and they started to fall. And we see paid clicks growing to nearly 10% since then organic clicks falling, and now 68% of mobile searches end in a no-click search. And I think 38% of desktop searches end in a no-click search. Now, a no-click search can mean several things. It can mean, like, it can mean you know, you searched the wrong thing and then you realized like, refining your term could, could help you reach results a bit better. But it can also mean that your query is being answered in the search results. So what does that mean for websites? It purely means that you're getting less traffic from organic. And of course, that has a knock-on effect. Not only are you getting less traffic, less eyes on your site, but the, the more your traffic falls, the more Google itself understands that your site is not as worthwhile as it used to be. You know, they will, the crawlers will see that you're falling in organic traffic and they'll say, oh, maybe we shouldn't rank this site as highly as we used to. So it has a knock-on effect. The less traffic you have, the less highly you rank. And then there is an impact on business, of course, because a lot, like if we think about SaaS or software as a service, quite often these tools, particularly with a freemium model, depend on traffic mass to make them free, their freemium model work. Traffic mass, organic compound, is a, organic traffic is the best way to do that because it compounds. What happens when you can't compound organic? What happens to your business model? You have to rethink it. Right. And it ca- okay, so, I mean, call me a doomsday <laughs> for, for like, you know, so cost of acquisition goes up, right? Because you have to pay to get that traffic, which means that these smaller startups, right? Like, you know, if Slack was starting today with a measly budget, right? It's like, what would they do Would these companies even have a chance to emerge because they can't compete with budgets with companies that are, you know, already have, you know, existing enterprise companies already have huge, huge budgets. So can these kind of startups even emerge, right? Are we narrowing the field here by making everyone pay to get traffic, right? That was the thing that organic did. It was like organic leveled the playing field. It made it fair. And even if your content's the best, then you win, you get to be visible, you get to emerge, right? You have a, you have a shot, you have a shot. If everybody has to pay to play, what happens to the little guys? We see that in, in people we work with. I, I read a, a study from ProfitWell not long ago that said that the cost of acquisition of content marketing is increasing faster than cost of acquisition of paid marketing, of sending people to your post with paid traffic, which is scary when you consider how much paid actually costs, how much you pay per click. And I, in my previous job, we lived through this situation where our biggest competitors were Adobe and InVision who massive players and have a huge amount of financing behind them, a huge amount of investment. And once search traffic started to fall, there was literally no way us as a 10-person startup could put 20 grand behind paid advertising for content every month, particularly when your content, ours wasn't converting at a rate high enough to justify putting 20,000 pounds euros in this case behind that content and so what do you do as a little guy there isn't there isn't that democratic quick win that search used to be even with social it's the same way right like it's it's yeah okay so i'm getting worked up 
So let's move. So, okay, so we've got this problem, right? And it's real and it's big and it's been, you know, we've been sort of slowly seeing it coming for years, right? It's almost like the second something re- reaches that like kind of peak saturation, right? It goes downhill. So we're, go- we're going down the hill. What, <laughs> what, what do we do, Cassie? <laughs> <laughs> I think you said at the beginning that maybe we should try and look at this as a, an opportunity rather than an existential threat. And I don't want to be all Pollyanna about it, but I think we look at it as an opportunity or we simply sink. So let's be positive and say we, there are, we'll have to think of new ways to get people to our site, because let's be clear, most, almost all companies still will want traffic to their site in the future. I don't see how that's going to change unless Amazon starts selling tech products or software, and then it could change. But while people still have to convert on a website, brands are still going to want traffic there. How do they do that? I think it's gonna, going to take a combination of changing our keyword strategies, changing the way we want to appear in actual search results pages, and then changing the tactics that we use away from keywords and search results pages. And I think, you know, if we cover those one by one, we might be able to pull out at least some some tactics to try and see if they work. All right, let's take me through it. Make me feel better. Give me the ray of light, Cassie. I think there is a ray of light. I think there is. When we said at the beginning, what kind of terms are you losing search traffic for? Most sites will be losing search traffic for terms that are covered by one of Google's SERP features, as in a featured snippet, a knowledge graph, an answer box, an image carousel, anything like that, Any of, or even Google Images. You know, Anything that appears at the top when you make a search appears at the top of the search page and answers your question immediately in whatever form those are the kind of things we're going to be losing traffic for. So starting off with a keyword strategy, I think then think about what are the terms that we're not losing traffic for? What are the terms that those SERP features, featured snippets, knowledge graphs, not covering? They are at the moment, like we can't guarantee this will continue, but navigational and transactional searches are not at the moment being covered by SERP features. So if I want to search navigational, if I want to search a brand and then a feature on that brand, I don't know, Honda pricing or something like this, that won't be answered by a SERP feature and that click will still go to your site. Yeah. So that means perhaps weighting our keyword strategy and our content keyword strategy more towards navigational terms and building, focusing a little more on demand generation and brand awareness for your branded term keywords could be really important. And I think that's interesting because in going towards demand generation, almost we're winding back the clock to an era when marketing was more PR and positioning driven. So that could be interesting, a renewed focus on navigational and branded terms. And this reminds me of a conversation, you know, Jan and I were talking about thought leadership recently, and this seems like a good time for companies to kind of refocus you know, kind of bring PR into their strategy more, you know, talk about topics that are more complex, right? As you say, they can't be answered with a simple answer box. They're, you know, topics that prompt discussion, right? They need more analysis and perhaps they get visibility because, you know, you sort of go back to that like social model where it's like, you have this headline that catches attention, right? Now it's like, sort of incorporating the old with the new, bringing PR into content marketing strategy. And it's like, 
yeah, write a sexy title. Like we've been writing for search for so long. It's like, we forgot that like, you know, it's not just about the number or the best or whatever, like the the ultimate guy, whatever. We have to go back to writing an interesting title, which personally I get really excited about. (laughs) I think definitely PR gets a really bad rap from everyone. I think that will change and I think it should change because I think PR and content are actually going to move closer together in the future. And that's probably a a topic for another time, but certainly taking perhaps a more PR approach to demand gen and your brand within your content and certainly a more editorial approach and thought leadership is within that. And you're right. Blogging inverted commas, like content marketing has its own particular jargon and its own particular way of framing posts, like 10, 10 best or clickbaity title, stuff like that. And we may see that at least falling a little bit out of favor as people try to create curiosity around their brand and also write more towards long tails and not the big informational terms that can be covered in a featured snippet. So people might start to niche down into topics and to write in a more editorial style, I, th- I think, in order to create more brand awareness and more brand loyalty. What I like about that too is I feel like it does take us to the next step, next wave of improving content, which it's like, you know, everybody is fighting for these like, you know, high volume terms that are very simple and like, what is this? Or, you know, the ultimate guide to that, Right. But focusing on long tail, A, you have to write more, right? Because these have lower, these keywords have lower volume, but then you start to build a library, right? Your strategy involves building a library of content, which is great for your users, right? You become this like one stop, instead of being a platform to rule them all, you become this like single resource for people where you're a tool and you're the knowledge base, for your user. And that's something that I was really passionate about at Help Scout. It's partially why I created Help You, right? It was like, look, we're never going to survive just competing as a product. We need to be the place, whether people use our tool or not, the single place where you can get everything you need to be perfect at customer service. We have the product, we've got the knowledge, we've got the community, right? It was like, let's aggregate that all together. And I think that focusing on long tails is a really important nudge in that direction where like people have to work harder to really service their customers, right? Both to capture them and to keep them. And it's through, you know, they have to, they have to build a library. And I think that's actually pretty cool. And I think that kind of content, and I, I think you live this in Help Scout as well, does better within your niche communities, whether you've created that niche community or whether you have tapped into some kind of niche community among your target readership. Long-tail driven, really focused content tends to do better in those kind of forums as opposed to the, I don't want to say clickbaity, but the kind of top of funnel, very general content that perhaps does well on social media or in search. So I think that will have long-term wins when you, if you choose a different distribution channel other than such. Right. And that goes back to brand building too, right? The community driven content like makes people fall in love with your brand, right? That's where Help Scout really won is like people loved Help Scout because their content was so good and so specific. Like we really drilled down into all the kind of niche challenges and of the customer service community. 
even if people didn't use us, they loved us. And when it was time, when, you know, when, when they were ready to buy a customer service tool, right, they thought of us first. Great. So we, okay, okay, so we should talk about community content, actually, because I think that's a big... Hang on, can I stay on SERP for one minute and just... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Before we talk about community content, because I think there's a lot of things we can say about community content, I just think it's important to point out that you can do other stuff on the SERP, like on the search search results page, rather than not just focusing on keywords. And I do think it will be important for us to kind of, us as content marketers, to accept that Google is king and we should create content both for Google-owned properties and for... SERP features, specifically designed for SERP features, because we see that 6% of global searches, I think, go to YouTube. I think I'm right in saying that, which is, of course, a Google-owned property. I don't know how many local searches, for example, restaurants near me, go to Google My Business results or Google Maps results, but I, I assume the percentage is high. So I don't think we should, like, as we say in Scotland, get in a huff with Google or sulk with them and stop producing content for them because that would be shooting ourselves in in the foot. I think content marketers will have to increasingly choose how to create content for certain Google-owned platforms, whether that's Google News, YouTube, or Google My Business, and see those coming up in SERPs ahead of your specific site, for example. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, there's a, a, you know, a couple of years ago, putting videos on YouTube, right? It was mostly just a hosting platform. Today, there's SEO for YouTube. So, which seems counterintuitive, right? Because we're talking about, you know, Google kind of creating features that are taking traffic away from us. And at the same time, we're like, yeah, but now we need to create more content for them, even though, you know, so. We just um, have to lean into it. They're so big that they wouldn't notice if we were in a sulk with them and didn't create content for them, but our sites would probably notice. So we just have to lean in and create content for knowledge panels, for featured snippets, for Google News, and sneaky ways of making sure people click through from a SERP, for example, by doing 20 steps on how to wash a dog rather than the eight that will appear in your featured snippet. And then someone will say, wow, there's 12 more steps on how to wash my dog. I have to click through for a stupid example, but that that kind of works, you know. Um, And I think we will have to just have to accept that and go with it. And also thinking about wider PR exercises, like building more relationships with other publishers, particularly the publishers that aggregate the content that appears in the featured snippets. I did a a test when I was thinking about what I was going to say in this podcast, and I googled Cocker Spaniel colors, because I love Cocker Spaniels. And of course, you get an aggregated (laughs) result with pictures of different Cocker Spaniels and the colors they come in. Where do they get that information from? They get it from aggregate sites, you know, like Wikipedia or Kennel Club, something like that. So we will have to start building more relationships with those sites that aggregate to ensure that we're at least in some of those results pages that appear at the top. Right, right. It's interesting because, you know, this concept of being more niche is somewhat ubiquitous. It goes, it applies to the specific topics we're writing about, but also applies to our approach where like there is, look, there was never a silver bullet ever, not once. Search wasn't even a silver bullet, right? Because just to, to even rank takes a lot of work. But now it's like, okay, if you're going to do search, you have to approach search and a, approach search in a few, like you have, to, you have to tailor your search strategy more and be more specific about it, right? You want to develop a more long tail strategy. You want to target specific features and, you know, tailor content to specific properties, right? 
you want to develop your own PR approach. So, you know, instead of maybe contracting with a PR firm, you personally develop those PR relationships, like own as much as you can, right? Take up as much space or carve out as much space for your company as you possibly can. So your whole strategy is sort of composed of a bunch of niche kind of approaches, which I think can sound scary to people, right? Feel It sounds like there's a lot of time invested, but actually it's the same. I think you can templatize that as much as we've, we've templatized and developed process around search and social in the past, right? And I think it's this whole concept of working smarter, not harder. Maybe two of those things that you do have higher returns than you know, 10 other things that you could be doing. So yeah, and I agree. I think building those incremental relationships, those aggregate relationships has always been important. And perhaps I've certainly been guilty of going for the big hit in the search traffic, like uh, getting a viral post or a post that compounds 10, 50% growth every month. And that's such a, a boost to your site and perhaps to your ego as a content marketer that you go for that quick win or that that easy win. But we're living in a subscription economy. And the thing that's most important in that is building relationships. And I almost think this is an opportunity for us to remake or start to rebuild those relationships that perhaps we haven't been building over time. And I know certainly I didn't in my previous career when I just went for search and saw success in it. But loyalty and education about your product or service, like you're talking about, you did with Help Scout, is going to be increasingly important. And these kind of, the things we're talking about now and how to avoid the, the dip in search traffic are actually also ways that we can create those deeper relationships with people who come to the site, I think. Yeah. And it makes, look, I mean, one of our most popular, oh, sorry, one of our highest traffic posts at Help Scout was the psychology of color. And how many customers or leads do you think that brought us? Like next to nothing. It's all vanity traffic. It's like, look at how much traffic we have. And it's like, a lot of it was useless, right? So, you know, I agree. Like, I think, again, like, if we can just get comfortable with perhaps, like, lower absolute numbers, right? Like, or lower, lower overall numbers, but then looking at the impact of the, you know, what traffic we are bringing in. If we're bringing in less traffic, but that traffic is converting at a higher percentage, then... Who cares if it's 400,000 or 100,000, right? If 400,000 is converting at a lower rate, 100,000, you get it. Converting at a higher rate, we're better. And so, again, smarter, not harder. And removing ego from the equation does a lot. You're like, okay, yeah, I don't need, I don't need millions. You know, I need, a, I need a few that are the exact people who might buy my product. And I think that is going to be, my prediction is that, is going to be our new reality. Our new metrics will be engagement, returning visitors, time on page. Our metric will not be traffic. And we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable at first and get comfortable with doing that. And it's all going to be about those long-term engagement and relationships, I predict. Yeah. A great way to do that is community content. I think because community content, as in user-generated content, It's produced by people who use your product and service and then can be repackaged by you or built on by you as a content marketer to create community, to create long-term loyalty to your brand and be useful over the long term to the people who want to use your product or who don't. I think that could be really important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
Okay, so what else, right? There's got to be, because look, this new basket that we draw from, it has to has to include a lot of, you know, it should be, it should be full with, with options so that we can then hand select, right? What the formula is, you know, there's all the vegetables in the garden, right? We want to identify all those vegetables and then each of us chooses a salad that we make, right? Based on what our business is and what we're trying to achieve. So going back to community content, this to me is about brand as much as it is about traffic, right? Because you're building with community content for me, you're building, like you're building, you're, you're growing your fan, like a more loyal fan base, right? People who not only like, you're not just trying to get people, you're not just building, uh, growing a group of people who would buy your product. You're growing a group of people who will talk about your product to other people. Completely. You're growing your, your network of people. And I don't know if I can reference Envision again, but in my old job, I basically had to stalk them. So I have a lot of like <laughs> what Envision did well or badly stories. And we used to like, we used to follow mentions of them on social media or on product hunt or something like that. And people felt Users and non-users, designers in general, felt such a strong loyalty and affinity with the Envision brand because the Envision brand was really in tune with providing them what they needed. And I think there was one instance when Envision produced an ebook that was gated and it wasn't people didn't like it, it wasn't up to scratch. And there were a ton of people feeling very, very offended and let down as if it was a friendship that Envision had had betrayed them because they produced a piece of gated content that didn't come up to the mark. And I remember thinking, if you can create that sort of expectation around your brand, that sort of emotion, it can be really great, really powerful. I think the way they did it was to be constantly engaging with their community. They have like a, a really a really vibrant forum, really vibrant um what's it called, a profile on Dribble, things like that. And they then recycle the content that users produce on there into posts, into courses, into email courses, mini packages that serve people's needs because they've seen that that as content that people have organically generated for themselves. And just that reproduction cycle of acknowledging what users need, acknowledging what they're producing, and then packaging it and giving it back to them seems to be really powerful. We see that in Shopify as well, which has like a super, a super massive community that's really vibrant. They've got nearly 600,000 members. And they, Shopify takes um, interesting arguments or interesting customer stories out of that, recycles it back into its blogging strategy and creates this sense of quid pro quo and reciprocity. I think that's a word, isn't it? Reciprocity, yes. <laughs> I'm just inventing it now and it creates it. that cycle of a relationship and community yeah. content can be a great way of doing that. The problem is, as I discovered, it's so hard to create that feeling, that emotion, that connection with your brand. Yeah. Don't, don't ask me to do that. So what do we mean by community content? I think produced by people who use your product and service and then not manipulated, but used by you to create useful content off the back of that. Sure. And it's also, yeah, so there's like this user-generated content element, and then there's how you as a company participate in communities, right? So it's almost as if, you know, your interactions become, become content, right? And this really goes back to, again, not to date myself too much, but it's like this goes back to 
community management. We weren't content marketers in the beginning. We were community managers. We were creating Twitter accounts by, for our company using the like first name, last name. Like We used to have to adapt these platforms for businesses so, and interact with people you know, to try to get them to pay attention to our company. It's like we're kind of going back to that now. So, you know, it's like your interactions become content, right? Um, so you've got the content created by you, how you use that in communities to get people to pay attention. There's user-generated content and how you adapt that into content for your company. What are the, like, you know, what do you, what would you say are the leading kind of community platforms right now? It depends. Obviously, it depends what sector you're working, you're working in, first of all. And then it depends why you're creating that community content if you're talking if you're creating this community content or trying to create a community to get to replace the lost search traffic to your site you should focus on fora or platforms that allow that are sort of outbound link friendly so if we think of something like hacker news that's a great place to get traffic from because they allow you to include an outbound link back to your site they allow it to be prominent and there's a lot of traffic there. So that's a great way of getting traffic back. If you're creating this community content for a more long-term goal of brand awareness or just to have fodder for your own non-community content, then you don't need a platform that is perhaps quite so friendly to outbound links. And you could consider something like the more established social media platforms that are increasingly not favoring content with links. So something like Facebook, a native video on Facebook with no link back to your site could serve the purpose of building community within that platform. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, there's the B2B darling platforms. There's gosh, you know, this topic to me feels really big. This could be an episode in and of itself because even with, you know, the hacker newses and the reddits of the world, like you almost have to create a strategy specifically for those platforms. Right. And that does take, it's almost like its own unique PR strategy in a way. And so I think the the important thing when it comes to community content is taking a step back at the beginning and saying, what are the platforms that are most useful to my business? What are the rules of engagement on these platforms? How are people using them? What are the micro communities on these platforms? How are those people behaving? Almost developing personas for each platform and creating an, a unique style guide for each one so that you know how to either adapt content. Or like You can't just say, you know, you can't just go to each one and post things however you want to post them and pray, right? You really do have to create a sort of micro strategy for each one and, you know, make your efforts more impactful. And I think that's perhaps that kind of deep persona work is perhaps more important in the tactic that we're talking about than in, than in search, because in search, you're kind of hoping to have the if you're doing top of funnel to have the widest range of people coming to a site as possible. But in these smaller niche communities, there are very often quite strict unwritten or unspoken rules of engagement that if you, if you get them wrong at the beginning of your time posting or sharing with this community, it, it can go very wrong for you, I think. And we've seen that in brands getting Twitter wrong in the old days, like perhaps some stuffy oh. brand doing some really bad work on Twitter. I think there's some great examples out there. And that's true for if you want to post on Hacker News or Indie Hackers or UX Stack Exchange, you have to know what you're doing or else you'll certainly 
seem ridiculous. It's sort of the opposite of search, right? Search, it's like, okay, do your best to optimize for, you know, whatever key, like do your research, find, you know, for that keyword, do your best to optimize for it, put it out there, see what happens, refresh, right? There's this whole idea of like, just get it out there, learn, improve. Communities, it's the opposite. Do your homework first, right? Do not, you can make minor faux pas, but like you can't, like first impressions are everything with communities. And it's like, it actually is worth the investment in time to build these personas and figure out the rules of engagement first for communities. Cause you're right. If you're like, especially if you're a brand and you go in there wrong, it's like you will get eliminated quickly and it's hard to come back from that. It's hard to come back. I think so. And perhaps this speaks a bit to why some of us, I include myself in this, haven't taken this road or this tactic before because it is a lot of work. And I know that search traffic, generating search traffic is a lot of work as well. But we've kind of got it down and it's templated and codified and we know how to get search traffic. And then this, we're going to have to rethink the game and invest a lot of time in learning and making mistakes and that's frightening and also doesn't seem realistic when you're perhaps working long days in a startup environment and you have to see results. And then going to your boss and saying, well, I want to create seven different personas for Hacker News or something might might sound ridiculous, but it's what you have to do, I believe now. I do too. And I think that the other, you know, it's again, this whole idea of companies getting comfortable with a new reality, right? The new reality is you have to invest in your people. You have to build relationships. And we've been talking about building relationships for years, right? Search algorithms keep getting better and better, supposedly improving the quality of content. But at the end of the day, that's not relationship building, right? We're catering to an algorithm. What's interesting about what this you know, change in search is forcing is us to truly start engaging again with people, one-to-one, right? Really making, you know, developing, um, you know, walking. It's, it's the same as like, now you have to walk up to someone on the street, right? Like that is, and like, look them in the face, see their features, the way they react to things that you say. Like, it's really forcing that kind of interaction online. And I, I for one, am in favor of it. It, it is going to create more work for marketers. It's, it's going to mean that companies are going to have to invest more money in their marketing budgets. But I think at the end of the day, it is forcing us to be better, right? Like it's forcing us to take, actually take time to truly get to know our target audience, right? And it's scary. It will be scary to have that, again, return to a more human interaction in the marketing we're doing, because now you can see the reactions instantly to when you do a marketing campaign. And that's never ha- that's never been true, really, in history before. Like People in the Mad Men era or something, you know, people made an advert and then never really knew how people received it on an emotional level unless they did focus groups. And now within two seconds on Twitter, you can see whether you've got it right or not. And that's going to be uncomfortable for us when we don't get it right. But the benefits will be massive when we do, and we don't have any choice but to do it. Yeah, and look, people have been paying lip service to like bringing customer support, sales and marketing teams together, right? They've, you know, historically been kind of like, they haven't, they haven't, there's, there hasn't been an elegant way to bring those three together. And this forces that 
because you really are going to have to know your, your user inside and out, right? You're going to have to know them like you're they're truly your best friend and not just pay lip service to them, to knowing them like they're your best friend. And so the more those three teams kind of work together to build this complete persona, I think the more successful the marketing is going to be, which gives sales more to do, which is great for the, et cetera. Okay. So we've got this new reality. We're sort of scratching the surface on what community content can do for us. What should marketers be thinking about now and what should be marketers be thinking about and doing in a year, in two years? Like what's the, you know what I mean? Like if you were, if you're a marketer at a company right now, what are you, like, what should you be really worried about right now? And what should you be starting to plan for in the next year or two years? I hate to be non-dramatic. I don't think we should be super worried. I think we should be aware and starting to build foundations for this new reality. But I don't believe that we're going to see a sudden drop of 100% in organic traffic to our sites within the next six months or a year. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. But I think this is definitely the time to start building a framework for that new reality, which will make your current marketing stronger as well. So start thinking about perhaps that more traditional marketing mix of how you can build relationships with relevant publishers, forums, user sites, communities, how you can use different native platforms to start moving away from search traffic, where your keyword opportunities will lie in six months, perhaps in those navigational and transactional and long tail terms rather than big chunky head terms and starting like you say building relationships in your team so that content isn't just restricted to talking to the content team and I think the point about talking to the support team or the customer customer services is really important and I've certainly never in my in-house career managed to create enough of a strong relationship with the support team but it's going to be vital and I think building structures internally to help that happen will be really important. Yeah, I agree. I think, look, I think the companies that succeed are the ones that are, you know, becoming experts on all the kind of major platform. Well, first of all, just knowing what the platforms in their sort of ecosystem are, right? Like what people are using, becoming experts, getting people, quote unquote, on the ground, right? In those platforms, getting to them, building up their their own followings, their own cred, karma, whatever the platform has. And building their network, right? Like re rebuilding their digital network. They're sort of slowly over time building that up, shifting the weight away from search, right? Or at least evening it out a little bit more so there's less of an impact there. Tweaking how they're approaching search and really being the ones to examine, like you talk about different metrics, right? It's like, cool, this, you know, this post is getting you know, a hundred thousand views a month, but like how many customers is actually bringing us, right? And um, that's the uncomfortable truth because very often, like you said, the highest traffic posts are the ones that in this new reality will, will not be worth very much. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, build that library, grow that community, make those relationships, become an expert in a lot of little, like of smaller things, right? Smaller communities, smaller platforms, lower volume terms, right? And then you've got your nice, like your salad doesn't have to be a cob, right? It could be like a Caesar. There could be three ingredients, but three or four or whatever, depending on how you make your Caesar. But it's like those ingredients 
make something that is that everybody loves. Everybody loves Caesar salad. I don't personally, but like everybody else in the world does, right? It works. It's a staple. It's effective, right? So it's like build a Caesar, not a cob, right? And I think it's like narrow your focus. And I think that those, you know, I think those people weather the storm better, right? Because they take a few of their eggs out of the search basket. They put it into a couple of others, but they can still carry all those baskets with two hands, right? I think that's what's really important. It's like focus, but broaden out a little bit from just, you know, leaning so hard on search and paid. Mm -hmm. I think we see people doing that, for example, in the, in the growth in podcasts, which is that's a recurring channel that it does come in peaks, right? You know, you publish a new podcast and you get a peak of traffic, but at least you've got people who are coming back and back to your podcast. So it's a recurring channel that could replace the compounding returns that we've seen up until now on search. So people who are investing in subscribers of one sort or another, whether that's newsletters or podcasts, will have another thing, another ingredient to put in the salad and another way of generating traffic movement that's not reliant on on Google. That's a great point. And, you know, I used to be – I used to really poo-poo podcasting. I would – you know, my biggest argument – because, gosh – Every founder wants to start a freaking podcast. It drove me nuts. They were like, why are we starting? I'm like, and my argument used to always be, it's like creating a whole other product that you have to market. You have to build, you know, like you have to build your listenership. You have to promote it. Like to me, it always felt like such a project. And I think that my thinking there was a little bit backwards actually, because today, I mean, look, we have this podcast and, you know, it's not, you know, it's still growing, right? But it is generating traffic for us. It's generating awareness for animals. It's creating, you know, people are getting to know our brand because of it and respecting us. Like, wow, you share, well, some of them at least think that we're sharing smart ideas. Right. And that's great. So, you know, I think now I think about it a lot differently. My friend Jay Akunzo, who he runs a podcasting business. I think he's shed a lot of light for me on this as well, where it's like, nope, you can, creating a show isn't easy right? But it is effective and it doesn't, I've come to the other side. I believe in podcasts more as a strategy, just like, you know, video series, Profit Well does this really well. They have lots of different video series in of varying lengths, right? And I think they've, that they're another example of people who have used, you know, the sort of podcast video format very effectively. So, okay. So the world, the world is not ending, it's just our new reality is forcing us to diversify a little bit, but drill down on those few different things that we're, that we're utilizing, right? And becoming experts in them. And look, at the end of the day, this is forcing us to be better, right? It is forcing us as marketers. It's forcing us to make our content better. It's forcing us to make our strategy better. It's forcing us to, you know, not just kind of rest we can't be lazy. And I kind of like that, right? I think, you know, our quality will atrophy if we're not being pushed and we're being pushed. So that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So thank you. This was an exciting conversation. I feel we've only scratched the surface here of this topic. I think there's other things that we can dive into more, which we'll do on future episodes, but this is a good, this is a good start I think in the notes we can share, we'll share some links of, I think it'd be great to feature some, list some companies we think are doing, are great examples. Yeah. So we'll find some for you 
And then you had some great links explaining the state of things that we'll share as well. So thank you everybody for listening. As always, if you want to share your feedback, Devin at animals, Cassie at animals.co, you can email us and thank you so much for listening.